Welcome to episode two of the Disability Perspectives podcast. My name is Utah Kirshner. Thank you all for listening and for your support so far between the first episode and the introduction episode. We have received more than 30 responses to our Google form, so we are working to sort those and organize them and hopefully reach out to people. If we don't reach out to you soon, please be patient with us because we have a lot of interest. In the meantime, please continue sharing us with your friends. You can find the Disability Perspectives podcast wherever you get your podcast. Also, please follow us on Facebook at disability.perspectives, on Twitter at dp underscore podcast one, and on Instagram at disability.perspectives. If you are interested in seeing the transcript for today's episode, please follow the link in the episode description. Today, we sit down with Kendall Kieser, one of my lifelong friends and current classmate at Virginia Tech. Kendall and I have been going to school together since kindergarten. We will discuss her experiences with generalized anxiety disorder, persistent depression, and obsessive compulsive personality disorder. We hope you enjoyed today's episode as we continue striving to normalize the conversation around disabilities. So my name's Kendall Kieser, and I'm a junior at Virginia Tech. I'm studying criminology and psychology. I'm going to graduate in December of 2021. I'm from Hot Springs, Virginia, the same place as Utah. I love my dog. She's a mini golden doodle named Paisley. And I craft a lot. I read a lot. I watch a lot of Netflix, just like the normal people things. And I listen to a lot of podcasts as well. So it's interesting to be on this. Sweet. Well, thank you for being here. You mentioned that you're studying psychology and criminology. What do you want to do with those things once you're finished at school? I'm not 100% set on anything. I would love to go into therapy and possibly get my master's in social work to be able to get my licensed professional social worker degree. Or I'd love to go into investigation through criminology. And I would love to be able to profile and analyze criminals. Okay, fun. Um, so we'll go ahead and jump in into your diagnosis and what we're talking about today. So if you want to just go ahead and um, describe what your diagnoses are, which ones are diagnosed, which ones aren't diagnosed, and a little bit about those. So I am diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, per, um, persistent depression, and I'm not diagnosed with obsessive compulsive personality disorder but I recognize it as something that I struggle with. And some of the experiences that led me to get a diagnosis for generalized anxiety disorder are that I have a lot of outbursts, extreme sadness, worry about small things, and a high, my high school experience has kind of led me to that and what I had to deal with then. And that also really connected to personality or persistent depression. So you were first diagnosed when you were in high school, right? Yes, I was diagnosed at 14. Okay, and those those sort of outbursts, sadness, things like that that you mentioned, those were what led to that diagnosis so pre-14? Yeah. And have continued through it? Yes. Okay, got it. So considering the obsessive-compulsive personality disorder just as sort of a um, point here to cover, a lot of people aren't aware of the difference between obsessive-compulsive personality disorder and obsessive-compulsive disorder. Um, the difference being one's a personality disorder and one isn't. So do you want to like talk just a little bit about the difference between those two? Yeah. So 
obsessive compulsive personality disorder relates more to your personality, of course. So I have extreme organization, neatness, and I'm a huge perfectionist. I feel the need to push my values onto other other people, for example, like shaming other people for not being as clean or organized as I feel like things should be. I've also noticed that once I entered college, it's been difficult for me to create and maintain strong relationships with other people just because I feel the need to like have my values reflect on the people that I'm around. I feel isolated in ways and part of the diagnosis that separates us from obsessive compulsive disorder is that I know these actions are wrong. I know the things that I'm doing. Therefore, it's not the anxiety disorder of obsessive compulsive disorder because people know what they're doing doesn't don't know that what they're doing is wrong. And so like I said, I deal with perfectionism. I'm very frugal with my money. I pay extreme attention to detail. I have huge fixation and obsession with lists. I sometimes fear of giving tasks to others because I think they won't do it right. Like one of my big things that I say is if you want it done right, do it yourself. I have a very big devotion to work to please my family or feel like I need to please my family or my relationships. I have a very overwhelming need for order and things being done the way they should be. And the whole need of pushing my values on the other is sort of a sense of righteousness on how things should be done in my head. Okay, so in short, the, the big difference between um, obsessive compulsive disorder and obsessive compulsive personality disorder is that the disorder that's not a personality disorder is marked by more anxiety and a lack of knowing that the things that you're doing aren't normal or aren't okay. Yeah. Whereas the personality disorder is you're recognizing that I have these things where I'm obsessed with bliss and I'm obsessed with order and I'm obsessed with organization and I really value work and I want things done correctly. Like those are all things that you recognize are happening or that you're um, experiencing. And so then it becomes the personality disorder. Yeah. Okay, so knowing that you don't have a diagnosis for obsessive compulsive disorder because you recognize the behaviors are not typical, do you know why you don't have the diagnosis for obsessive compulsive personality disorder? Is it because you haven't sought a diagnosis or have you sought it and not received it for other reasons? Or I haven't sought it because I have the knowledge through my psychology major and different classes that I've taken and I understand what it means. And being on prescription medicine already for my anxiety and depression and cognitive behavioral therapy already doesn't make it seem necessary to get the disorder. I'm sure that I could go and get the diagnosis, but I feel like things that they would do based on what I've learned are the things that I'm already doing. Okay. So going into um, a little bit more about your disorders, you mentioned a little bit like what they look like so far. Uh, but tell me a little bit more about the disorders that you have. And so obviously we can look all of them up and see what the DSM-5 says about them or what experts say about them and how they um, are presented in people's lives and things like that. And I can include links to those in the episode description. But um, I want to know what they look like in your life. What has your experience been that reflect those disorders and how they presented in your life? So actually, I was diagnosed at 13. I know I said 14 earlier, but just forgot that and with generalized anxiety disorder i experience a few symptoms very often like extreme worry over very small things even if i have a completely empty schedule if something is even trying to be planned i need it to be 100 percent planned out ahead of time 
I do not like unorganized things. I'm constantly moving in order to keep my own attention, like tapping my fingers, shaking my legs. I spin one of my rings a lot around my finger just to be able to pay attention and focus on what I'm supposed to be focusing on. I worry over things that don't need to be done for months. Like for example, right now I'm really worried about graduation and one of my advisors is making it seem like it's gonna be very difficult for me to graduate. And I sometimes look to seek reassurance for things that I'm doing. And then also this kind of relates to persistent depression and my anxiety disorder is that I feel a lot of fatigue so I consistently sleep eight or more hours every single night and I still feel tired throughout the day. I feel as if one task wears me out and sleep is never enough. And I have a lot of irritability with my anxiety disorder. So if someone changes the plans or cancels plans last minute, it drives me insane because I feel like my whole day is messed up from that. I get irritated when people are messy and dirty, unorganized, especially if it's in within, within the space I'm living. And when something isn't done right or my way, I feel like it irritates me to where I need to do it again, like redo the whole task. I, when I was younger in high school, I used to become very nauseous with the thought of going to school and I made myself sick to the point where I couldn't go. And then I would feel guilty for missing school and assignments. I also, it still persists now sometimes that I worry about my body image. I'm trying to find a healthier relationship with food in my body because I know my body is my ally and different stuff, so I need to be better about that. And then with persistent depression, I also was diagnosed at 13. And to be persistent depression or chronic depression, that it's called sometimes, it has to be for two or more years. I do experience symptom-free intervals, which can't be more than six months. And that's just when it's not as obvious, but it comes back. I have a lot of overeating, which literally feels like stress eating and how people think of stress eating is how it feels to me. Hypersomnia, which is sleeping a lot, and then fatigue comes from doing small tasks throughout the day. I fidget, like I said, to keep my concentration because it has been two or more years to be chronic depression. It, my depression feels like that's just how life is for me, like nothing can change from it. I have practiced self-harm in the past. The self-harm isn't consistent anymore. It has been more in my high school days. And I have also threatened suicide before. And I feel like that was more for reassurance purposes, trying to get someone to notice that I'm not okay. And then I've gone over the obsessive compulsion personality, obsessive compulsive personality disorder before just to explain the difference between it and OCD. But some of the things that affect me, as I said, were perfectionism, I'm super frugal and stingy with my money, extreme attention to details, lists. I do things myself because I feel like they won't done right. They won't be done right. I have a devotion to work, overwhelming need for order, and a sense of righteousness. It's kind of like I can't go out into the world without feeling like there's something that needs to be done besides me out socializing, enjoying myself. If I go to a social event, I feel the need to leave early to go home and get other things done. So it's kind of like a, almost like a FOMA, like a fear of missing out on your own work that needs to be done. So it affects your ability to actually enjoy yourself in social settings. Yeah, I don't really have the FOMO of missing out on the social things. I have the FOMO of missing out on my life. It's like a reverse FOMO. Yeah. Gotcha.
Um, yeah, interesting. A lot of those things all the way across two things. One, a lot of those things are things that as long as I've known you is, I mean, at least as far as I can remember since the beginning of high school or even longer, um, even back into elementary school, I remember a lot of those things that I would notice like extreme neatness and organization and everything has a place and everything needs to be in its place and we need to have this planned out, ready to go. And I just thought of those as like the type of person you were and something that was not necessarily like indicative of some sort of disorder, but just like your personality and the way you were. But at the same time, it was like something that I could appreciate because I have things like that too, where I like to be organized, I like to have things ready to go. And I hate like winging it or flying by the seat of my pants with stuff. Like I want to know what's going on and what's going on. So I feel those things too. But I remember like, my point is that I never really imagined it as being a disorder, but instead being just the type of person you were. But essentially that's what the personality disorder is, is the type of person you are. It's just seen as a disorder. Yeah. And a lot of people can be like that, but the way that it separates it just being somebody's personality and somebody's personality disorder is if it affects the way they live and the way, once they start worrying about it or having trouble with coping with it, that's when it becomes the personality disorder. When it interferes with their way of life. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So going back to when you were diagnosed with these, diagnosed with these um, initial to the generalized anxiety and the persistent depression, um, right after that initial diagnosis, how were you affected immediately? Like in the, like the immediate aftermath, the shock factor, the sort of adrenaline of being diagnosed was it more devastating to you to have these diagnoses or more relieving that you finally had some sort of an explanation for the outburst extreme sadness and the other things that you had already been feeling i think i was so young and desperate for help that it didn't make me feel very terrible at first i was kind of just happy that there was some explanation an answer. after time i grew with my diagnosis and became more self-conscious about it and now I'm working on being more transparent publicly with my disorders as being on this podcast. I would have never done that a few years ago. It feels like the norm to have disorders now and people without disorders are the rarity and I know I'm not alone anymore. Okay, cool. And um, yeah, I like that you said that um, like a few years ago or, or when you first were diagnosed, you wouldn't necessarily been willing to talk about it. Um, and I think that that's just a cool plug for what we're trying to do with this podcast is make people more comfortable with sharing. Um, because like right now it feels like you're just sharing with me, but ultimately it's going to go a long way to help a lot of people um, to be more comfortable to normalize talking about disabilities. So with that said, were the diagnoses something that you tried to sort of hide or in the disability community call it pass um, with, or were you pretty open about sharing them with people? So were you, to start off with, were you kind of trying to hide those diagnoses or were you ready to go tell people that you had it so people understood why you were the way you were. At the start, I did everything I could to hide this and make me seem as quote-unquote normal as possible. Now I'm fairly open about them, especially if I'm getting into new relationships or anything. Within the first few weeks, I will explain to someone that I have these diagnoses, I'm living a functional life, but if something happens, it won't technically. There are sometimes explanations to things I do. So at first, it was, it was like you were trying to hide it because you didn't see it as normal, but now that you've um, been experiencing it for a while, you recognize that it is normal, um, or by society standards, it may not be normal, but it's it's not something that's wrong with you, and so um, now you're more open to sharing it with people. Yeah, looking at the mass of people, if you took a room of 20 people, 
I feel like the norm would be some, the majority of those people have something that bothers them, some type of disorder or disability. Yeah, more people are, are experiencing some sort of disability, quote unquote, than aren't today, which I think speaks volumes. Even if it doesn't seem crippling. Exactly. Uh, so as people learned about your diagnosis after you got these disorders, so obviously even when you first tried to hide it, you can't hide it forever. Like people are going to eventually find out. So as that began to happen, um, did you feel stigmas begin to form around your diagnoses? I felt people began to be more careful with me, like they needed to help and fix me. When I was at my worst, I was kind of appreciative that people were more cautious and helpful. Now that I know how to handle things and I've learned multiple different techniques to help myself, I know that I'm not the only one. I'm, I know that I am the only one that can fully make myself happy and want. I just want to be treated like all other people. So when you talked about the presented behaviors that you have and the things that you experience, I noticed that thing, things that many teenagers struggle with as a natural part of life. So things like extreme worry, sometimes irritability, worrying about going to school, body image, those sorts of things that a lot of people begin to experience through adolescence um, as they find their identity. What makes your symptoms different from that? So obviously you experience them through adolescence and up to now, but what about those symptoms are different than from people who experience some of those things but don't have a disorder to explain them? So before my disorders became prevalent to me, it was very unlike, the things that were happening was very unlike how I was beforehand. I had never been an angry or worrisome person or child, I guess. I truly loved learning and I still do. So going to school was more of a personal thing to me. My body image became more prominent in college once I was not as active. I was not a three sport athlete anymore. I didn't have the build that I used to have, and the symptoms felt different because they made me uncomfortable to the point that it impaired my everyday life. I, the fact that I didn't want to go to school in high school was weird because like I said, I do like to learn. I think it was more or less, I didn't want to see certain people. I didn't want people to see me and different stuff like that. And so that's sort of how this disorder has impacted your life and your everyday functioning because it was causing you to not enjoy things that you typically would have enjoyed. Yes. Whereas a lot of teenagers um, may not want to go to school, but it's not because, like, it's not, it's partly because of body image and worry about what people think and not wanting to see people, but also it's easy for them to say, I don't want to go to school because I don't enjoy being there because I don't want to learn and do homework. Um, and so it makes it easier for them to stay home, where in reality for you, staying home actually made things worse too because you were missing school and you were missing learning and you were missing doing what you enjoyed. But knowing that going to school and doing those things meant you had to deal with other things. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. So that's kind of the difference for you as well. And also maybe because those things sort of kind of hit you like a truck all at once where adolescence is something that people start to develop through interactions with peers where yours came from like within rather than yeah. other people's. Um, sort of perspective or um, yeah so people's other people's interactions with you okay so additionally with the fatigue I have a lot of college or I know a lot of college students including myself try to get eight hours of sleep a night which is something that you mentioned and yet because of our workload still barely have the energy to get through the day sometimes even with eight hours how do your diagnoses contribute to this and magnify what a typical college student experiences I feel like my problem is that I'm a totally different person if I do not get my eight hours of sleep. I'm basically a zombie. I cannot function at all like most people 
if they can't get their eight hours of sleep, they wake up, they drink coffee, they drink an energy drink, and they're ready to go. I can wake up after not getting eight hours of sleep, drink all of that stuff, try to get like my energy up, and still just be like shunning to everyone, not wanting to be in the situation, wishing I can just be in bed all day. So I begin to have a lot of anxiety also if I know that I won't get eight hours of sleep. So if I'm out somewhere and I should have gone to bed an hour ago based on the time I have to wake up, I won't have, I won't enjoy my time there. Like for example, I work at a super early morning job. I work at a coffee shop. So one time I was out at a, like a line dancing place and I thought I went to work at a certain time, but then I checked my schedule while at the line dancing place and saw that I actually went to work three hours earlier than I thought I would at 5.30 in the morning and knew that I should have been asleep at like 8.30 at night to be able to do what I need to do to get that sleep. So I instantly shut down when I was with all my friends, supposed to be having fun, and I just sat at the table and waited for us to leave, like begging to leave to try to get so home to go to sleep. And I lay in bed and worry about the fact that I will not get eight hours of sleep, but because of that, I consequently, consequently lose even more sleep I know that either way, I will still be tired throughout the day, but the required number of healthy sleep being stated as eight hours for someone my age makes it feel absolutely necessary for me as a rule that I need to follow. So when you get to the point where you realize that you're not going to get eight hours of sleep, that creates more problem because then you lay, lay in bed awake worrying about the fact that you're not going to get eight hours of sleep. So then as you do that, time's ticking and you're losing more and more sleep, so which just compounds the problem even more. So that said is eight hours you said that um eight hours is sort of the recommended amount of sleep someone our age should get at night so is that sort of has that sort of become a threshold for you like if you get seven hours and 59 minutes do you just like internally feel like that's not going to be enough or like do you is eight hours just a rough if i get about eight hours i'm going to be fine or do you have to hit eight hours on the dot or more to be fine like if you get seven and a half hours is it sort of a mental thing that you're like i'm not going to be able to do this or um, I feel like, like you said, seven hours and 59 minutes. I don't think that would make a huge difference to me. But when I think of seven and a half hours of sleep, in my head, I'm like, oh, that's not enough. Yeah. Even, like, give or, people would say, like, eight hours, give or take an hour. Like, nine hours seems perfect, but seven hours seems like I'm not going to be okay. Yeah. I'm going to be exhausted. I'm, like, that's not what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. And even, even in all reality, it's not going to affect you, like um physically or physiologically that much based on like what statistics say about sleep like it's not going to affect you that much but because of these disorders that you have they start to eat away at you and make you worry about it because you because you know that you're you should get about that much sleep yeah and so it's not necessarily a result of it's not necessarily the lack of sleep that causes your like inability to get through the day at full like energy it's the idea that you're not getting that sleep yeah and it's i not, feel like it's not the actual lack of sleep that's bothering Exactly. Gotcha. Um, so moving on from that then, so you mentioned that with generalized anxiety disorder, you experience irritability. Tell me about that. What does it look like? So my irritability is if someone cancels or changes their plans with me, I just get very upset. I feel like my day is ruined. There's, I feel like instantly I need to fill that time spot with something else that I need to get done. Or if people are messy, dirty, unorganized, I can't even really exist in that space without just something bothering me inside. 
And when something isn't done right or my way, then I have to redo the whole thing again. It takes even more of my time, but it feels like the only option. Gotcha. So when people change plans, a lot of times it's because you've, the reason that bothers you so much is because you've already put so much time and energy into making those plans and making sure everything was lined up and everything was where it was supposed to be and we were doing this then and then this and then that. So when they cancel it, in a way it makes you feel like you put a lot of work and energy into something and now it's just gone. Yeah. So you feel like you've used a lot of energy for that. Oh yeah. The other thing I was going to say is when someone, um, what you said that when someone does cancel a plan, you feel the need to start filling that time with something else productive. So a lot of people will, um, when they, when a plan gets canceled, they're like, oh, okay, that's like, that's a chance for me to relax. Like that's free time I didn't expect to have. But for you, that's time that you, if you use that as free time and you just like take time to relax, enjoy yourself, you're not going to be able to because your anxiety is going to cause you to wonder, I could be getting something productive done right now and I'm not. Yeah. So it ends up causing you not to be able to enjoy your free time. Yeah. And with other people saying like, oh good, the plans are canceled. Now I have more time to be productive. This kind of relates to my obsessive compulsive personality disorder as well. Because like for say in my friend group, we have somebody who's very flaky. So if we make plans, they probably won't show up. But for me, people are like, oh, Kendall isn't flaky. She just won't go. She won't say yes. So she'll instantly just say, oh, no, I can't go. I have things to do. So it's not like I couldn't make the plan and then cancel on people last minute because I know how that makes me feel. Yeah. Instead, I'll just say, oh, I'm not going to come. I have think even other things to do. You won't be able to go. You'll just cancel from the beginning. You yeah. And I feel like it's better for me to say no because I want to get things done than me canceling last minute because for one, I know how it makes me feel. And then for two, if I had those plans set and then I canceled them myself, it'd be very contradictive and it would still drive me insane. We hope that you have enjoyed today's discussion so far. We'll be returning to it shortly. Hello, my name is Scotty and I'm the audio editor for the Disability Perspectives podcast. I'm also an aerospace engineering major at Virginia Tech. I'm responsible for editing out mistakes in the recordings, stitching together the different sections of the podcast, and adding in a little music here and there. Fun fact, this music is from the 1996 video game Pilot Wing 64 and is written by the American composer Dan Hess. If you're interested in knowing more about the Pilot Wing series, retro gaming, model aviation, and more, boy do I have a shameless plug for you. Please check out my YouTube channel, The Pilot Wings Fan. That's The Pilot Wings Fan. Anyway, if you like what you've heard, we would love to hear from you. Please leave us a review on Anchor or any of our social media pages. If you're interested in being a part of the Disability Perspective podcast, whether as a member of our team or as a guest on the show, please fill out the Google form in the about section or on any of our social media pages. It will also be linked in the description for this episode. You can email us at disability.perspectives at gmail.com if you have any questions or would like to share with us. Lastly, if you like the podcast and want to ensure that it continues, we would be appreciative of financial support. We're not trying to make profit from this work, but we are college students, so our goal is only to offset the price of production. If you're interested in partnering with us in that way, please feel free to reach out to us. And now, back to the discussion. Okay, so now I'm interested to hear a little bit more about your persistent depression. Uh, could you just tell me a little bit more about that and how, it's exper how you've experienced or what that has looked like for you? So without it crossing over to anxiety with things like 
lack of sleep and fidgeting. I've done a lot of overeating as my new coping mechanism, I guess you could say, and how I used to cope with it, I guess, is I've practiced self-harm in the past just as something that I think it's more or less like the pain overrides the pain of the depression. And I've also threatened suicide before as trying to get reassurance from somebody else. It's not, it's for attention, but it's needed attention, not just wanting attention. Like okay. you need somebody to understand how you're feeling. Yeah, I often hear people talk about um, when someone is struggling with um, depression or anxiety and they have suicidal thoughts or self-harm, um, they experience that. I oftentimes hear people say, don't pay any attention to them. They're just doing it for attention. Don't give it to them. Um, but if you speak to just a little bit of the fact that, yes, that is correct. They're doing it for attention, but it's not something we should brush off and say, um, they'll get over it. They like, they just want your attention. Like it's, it's less of saying, Hey, look at me, I'm hurting myself, but more of no one understands the pain I'm going through. So here's how I'm going to make people understand that I really do need help. Yeah. So it's not like you need to pay this person full on attention. You should just like to be able to help them you should just ask them how they're doing ask them how their day is ask them how they're feeling about life just ask them questions that are more personal and we'll get them talking to you to just get something off their chest if they need it it's less that they want to be the center of attention and more that they just need somebody yeah they're and, alone yeah they exactly. feel isolated in the world okay um so if you're comfortable with it speaking on your experience with self self-harm and suicidal ideation. I'd like to hear about those experiences and what got you through those times when you felt you had no better option. So kind of just walk me through what your experience looked like with that, if you're comfortable with it, um, how that self-harm looked for you, what got you through it, what made you feel like that was your only option, and then with the suicidal threats, was it something where you didn't necessarily, like you think it was kind of an empty threat, but you did it for the attention that you weren't receiving in regards to what you needed, or just sort of walk me through that. So. I feel like self-harm is something really hard to explain to me. It felt good. It felt like it was all that I could do and all that would work for me in order to feel better. I wanted help and I felt like this was the best way for people to notice that I needed this help and to finally sit down and help me. I used to sit in the shower and cut myself and sob and wail. My family would hear me and make me come sit in the living room upstairs so I was in like an area around other people. And then for like the suicide, they weren't like to me, they weren't empty threats. It was a way for somebody to like, maybe notice that I needed help and I needed somebody to talk to. But it was also the fact that I sometimes I just really didn't want to be here anymore. I didn't want to have to suffer and deal with this anymore. And do you think um, when your family would have you come upstairs and sit in the living room with them or whatever, uh, was that a time when, um, when that would happen and you would come sit in the living room with your family, was that a time that felt sort of awkward, like there was an elephant in the room, or did you feel comforted then? Like, do you think that was a good move by your family? Do you think they did the right thing there? I think they did the right thing. It definitely was awkward, but I know it was for my own health and safety, mm -hmm. so. And is it oftentimes, was it oftentimes when you would have self-harm or suicidal thoughts or threatening those things, um, how often did it happen where someone would do something that looking back, you're like, I'm glad they did that, that was the best choice, but in the moment, you kind of, um, got upset about it or you were like like when your parents made you come upstairs in the moment you didn't want to you want to be by yourself but looking back you see how that was beneficial for you that they made you do that does that happen often or did it happen often yeah it happened a lot there were lots of times where somebody did something and I was like 
I wish anything in the world that you wouldn't have done that. But now that I look back, I'm very grateful that they did those they things. They did those things, good. Um, so with these sort of self-harm bouts and thoughts of suicide and things like that, were there, was there sort of a um, turning point in your life when you knew that something needed to change, the treatment needed adjusted, or anything like that where you thought, if something doesn't happen now, I might end up like really hurting myself? I feel like all like some of the hurting myself and self-harm and everything was after I truly reached out for help. I see it as something I needed to get past. I changed from bad coping mechanisms to healthy and then sometimes unhealthy, like overeating and stuff, coping mechanisms. But I was getting help in the time that I was like doing self-harm. Gotcha. And so that just goes to show that like getting, like reaching out and getting help and seeing a therapist or whatever that treatment is like that doesn't necessarily mean things are going to be smooth sailing from there like you're still going to have bad experiences you're still going to have backslides and things like that like but the importance is still that you reach out for help because it's a good start yeah great um and then through all of this what was sort of your light at the end of the tunnel what thing or things gave you hope and made you realize better days are coming like i can get through this like was there a point when you were like oh man, I'm starting to feel better. And obviously these are things that you still struggle with, so maybe you haven't reached that point yet. But is, has there ever been a, at any point throughout the, the experience, has there been a light at the end of the tunnel when you felt like things were turning for the better? I don't know if there was ever anything super obvious that it was a light at the end of the tunnel. It's been a very long and slow process for me. One thing is I used to struggle with certain things and now I struggle with different things now. And recognizing my progress with the older things has really helped. Like one thing that I used to struggle with was like doing even tiny small tasks alone. Like I wouldn't even want to go wait in line to buy food alone. And now I'm like looking for everything and every possible moment to be alone. Mm -hmm. To take my alone time. So it's nice to see that progress. Even though I'm dealing with something different mm -hmm. or could be dealing with something different. I recognize that I have made that progress and I can get past certain things. Mm -hmm. So I've always sort of known you to be sort of a mix of um, like having qualities of an extrovert but also having qualities of an introvert. And how do you think your like depression, anxiety, um, and things like that have played into like your qualities as being an extrovert? Because I know like you said you used to um, want to be around other people and if you even if you had to wait in line for something you'd want to be in line with somebody else and somebody there with you. Um, and that looks a little bit more extroverted. But then now you're like looking for every chance to like be alone, recharge, do your own thing, like not have to be around other people. So how is this like played into your like moving back and forth between extroversion, introversion and all of that? So I think part of being extroverted was somewhat forced for me because I felt like I needed to be outgoing and everything to fit in for people to not think that I'm just like a depressed person that... Mm -hmm wants to do nothing and everything and now I think deep inside I'm truly introverted like I really enjoy staying at home I'd rather stay at home than go out and like party with a bunch of people so I think like the introverted side isn't like people see me staying home alone as oh she's depressed but for me it's like I really enjoy that like that's what I would rather do than anything yeah so okay. the extroversion was more or less my anxiety and depression of like trying to fit in, and now the introversion is more or less me. Okay. So looking back on your experiences that you've had so far, do you think that these experiences sort of, quote unquote, added character, so to speak, or helped, you build, helped build you into the person you are today, um, for better or for worse, or do you think that like they're just a part of your experience and 
they haven't built they they haven't necessarily built you into who you are today, but they're just part of it. Yeah. So like how you kind of explain it, I don't like to think of it that way. No. But I know like my disorders are part of me. They are not my personality traits though. Everyone needs to remember that like people with disorders are human. They have normal things about them and they aren't their disorder as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's one thing we say a lot is that you aren't your disorder. Like your disorder affects you, but it's not who you are. Yeah. And you're a human before you're a depressed person or an anxious person or any of those things. Regarding all three of these disorders, both the two that you're diagnosed for and the obsessive compulsive personality disorder, what are some things that you didn't know about them before, uh, either receiving a diagnosis or studying them, that you do now? What are the things that are, that are often stereotyped that you want others to know or that aren't true? So one thing is that with generalized anxiety disorder, panic doesn't even exist. There is panic disorder, which is a whole different realm. So just because somebody has anxiety doesn't mean that they have panic attacks. and if you know somebody with anxiety and they've never panicked, that's not an excuse to be like, well, you don't have anxiety. You're fine. That's like a whole complete other disorder. And depression also doesn't mean that you're bedridden. I'm a very active person. I have my times, but it doesn't mean you're not capable of anything. It, depression has so many different looks. And then I honestly didn't even know obsessive compulsion, compulsive personality disorder existed until I started studying psychology. Gotcha. So just to speak to those with the um, generalized anxiety depression, I'm sorry, generalized anxiety disorder, um, just to speak to what you said, I know a lot of people think that anxiety is marked by panic attacks and that if you don't have panic attacks, you don't have anxiety. And that's just simply not true um, because a lot of people will suffer with anxiety for their entire life and never once have a panic attack because a panic attack is kind of an isolated event that happens right here and now and it causes you lots of like physiological issues right in the moment, but doesn't necessarily like you're not constantly in a state of panic where anxiety is sustained like it's an overtime thing where Mm -hmm. a panic attack happens all at once and if you know someone that does panic just because they've panicked a few times before doesn't mean they have panic disorder either like there's a certain number in time the time span needs to be correct and like i've panicked before i have panic attacks but that doesn't mean i have panic disorder there's a lot more diagnostic criteria than what you just see online somewhere and kind of always known those are how stereotypes are created yeah and then with the depression um you mentioned that you're not this doesn't mean you're bedridden because a lot of people who have depression um or a lot of people who think about depression they think about it as just being this thing where you can't get out of bed and you just don't want to do anything all day and like you don't have any motivation or energy or any of that and like you said you're a super active person like you work two different jobs you're a full-time college student like you go out and do hikes and all of that And I think that just speaks to the fact that a lot of people, um, that's why they always say check on your friends that are always in a good mood because maybe they could be the ones that struggle with depression more than anybody else. And it just goes to show not to go with the stereotype of that they're in bed all day. And some people, it takes that form, but in other people, depression manifests itself in different ways. Um, And I know that like with depression, people will have um, like highs and lows. And so maybe for two or three days, they do just lay in bed all the time. And then some days their depression looks like this crazy high where they get up and are active for two or three straight days and just do all kinds of stuff and then it just kills their all their energy after that yeah and like most people's depression is like ever changing so like you said people have their highs and lows i can have days where i go 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 and then it just like takes it all out of me and then i'm just like i don't want to do anything for the next few days so I'll lay here and basically just do nothing 
at all. And the problem then becomes that people, um, and I've seen this happen, where people will say, they're not depressed, they're just doing that for attention, they're just laying in bed all day for attention. And I know that because they were up all day yesterday, they went out and hung out with their friends, they grocery shopped, they went to the movies, they did all these things, but now they're laying in bed today. I'm not buying that, yada, yada. Yeah. But in reality, depression looks like that. It's exhausting. Yeah, and a lot of people don't realize that until they either know someone who has struggled with it or know someone who, um, or are someone who has struggled with it. Because in reality, I've never struggled with depression, so no matter how much I seek to learn about it, I'll never fully understand it until um, I do, but I just seek to learn more all the time. But uh, I think that just the solution to that is just to not not be okay or not settle for the idea of what depression is that you've had all your life like seek to learn more about it talk to people about it listen to things like this podcast that will um, give you the chance to see into someone's life who struggles with that um, because it's a lot more than than what you think right yeah exactly um so through your time and experience with these disorders what are some interventions that you have found to work types of therapy support animals medication um, what things have you found that have been best for for you coping with it, whether it's therapy, medicine, any of that? So I started with therapy when I was 13 and I have gone through a lot of therapists, honestly. I went to one, I didn't like it. I went to another one and I did not like that at all. So I even like took a little bit of a break. I was like, I can't find anyone who I like, feel comfortable talking around. And then eventually like it got to the point where I was like, okay, I need to go again. So I went and I found like the perfect therapist for me. I still go to her to this day. And I've been going to her probably since I was 14 years old. I'm 20 now, almost 21. And then I went to two therapists my freshman year of college trying to find a new one. I did not like them either. It just didn't feel the same as my old one. I was like, I wish I could go home. I wish I could go see my home therapist. And then I found two therapists that I consistently went to at school, and they have helped me a lot. But now, with COVID, everything has gone virtual, so I have started going to my therapist from home again, mm -hmm. which just changes everything for me. Mm -hmm. So you have to find somebody you trust to really be able to get better. Yeah. And then I started taking medication as well that same year, and it took me six years to truly find the best medicine for me. And I wouldn't even say it's the best. It's just what's worked the best. I started on one and it made everything 10 times worse. Like I instantly just like fell off a cliff when it came to my depression. Mm -hmm. And then I tried a different kind of medicine. I was on that for probably three or four years. And I kept having to up the dose because my body would simply just kind of get used to it. Yeah. And I reached the max dose and they were like, okay, we need to try something different. And now I'm on Effexor, which has helped a lot. But I'm also now on the max dose for that. And I've considered going through and changing it again. But one thing that I really struggle with when it comes to medication is dealing with the tapering period where they're taking you off your medicine and putting you on a new one. It's kind of like a time where you're not being medicated. It's a hard transition. It's a really, really hard transition. So that's when you need to like really focus on your cognitive behavioral therapy and go to that more often if you even need to just to get through that process because it's worth it. It can also take... A very long time to find the new medicine that works yeah and then also starting my sophomore year of college I got an emotional support animal and has made life ten times better it adds more stress in order to my life but I see it as positive stress in order like I have to worry about when I'm gonna go let my dog out and stuff but it truly makes me so much happier when I have her there and 
just whenever I can bring her places and if I'm struggling, I know she's going to be there, even if she's the reason I'm struggling. Mm -hmm. Like if she's really getting on my nerves when I'm trying to do something and like, but it's for the best. Yeah. And ultimately she's like, she's giving you something for those empty times when you feel like you should be doing something. She gives you something to do. And yeah. And when I feel alone, it's nice. She's there. She's there. It's nice yeah. to have somebody another, there. Even though she's a dog, it's another personality. Exactly. And she has plenty of personality. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Um, so you mentioned that like when you came home and COVID happened, everything, and it's hard for you to meet with your um, counselors at school. But when you started using your home counselor, again, though you're comfortable with your home counselor and enjoy her and she's helpful, it was still a, a whole different ballgame for you. You had to get back to used to, to working with her again. Um, and so would you just speak like really quick to even you can have like the idea that you can have two different things that work, but when they work differently, it causes a transition that you have to. So like your therapist at school, your therapist at school that you're used to when you're there are different from your one at home. So though they're both helping you, you have to get used to the different type of help they're providing you. Yeah, I get that. So one of my therapists at school is an animal support therapist. So she has a dog as well that comes in and does that. And she kind of does regular therapy, tries to help you with your values. And then the other one I go to deals a lot with trauma. So those are like two kind of different ones. And the one here, she has dealt a lot with social work, but has also kind of just like does overall generalized therapy. Mm -hmm. So it does take a lot of change, but a big thing to do is like my doctor tells me this a lot when I'm talking about our medicine. He's like, yes, you can take this medicine and stuff, but the most important thing is that you continue to go to therapy because one thing won't work alone for most everybody. Yeah. Especially if you're struggling. You need kind of a little bit of both to have a balance because they're so different. And it just that this whole thing kind of speaks to one of the themes that we talked about in my disability studies class, which is that multiple things can be true at once. And so like while one like while one therapist works good in one area, another therapist can work good in another. And so a lot of people are like, why do you need multiple therapists? But ultimately they're using different approaches. Yeah. And it's, and it's not just it's not just the medicine that's making things better. It's not just the the dog that's making things better. It's not just this therapist that like it's the it's like the accumulation of all of those things working together um, to to help make things better. I like to think of it as this has kind of been talked about with COVID is like the Swiss cheese method. Like if you lay a piece of Swiss cheese down, it has holes in it. But if you lay another one, then some of those holes are covered. And then you lay another one and some of those holes are covered. And eventually there's no holes through anymore. Yeah. So like you have to layer things to be able to make them work. Mm -hmm. That makes that makes sense. I like that analogy, actually. Um, so with it taking an extended period of time to sort of find what was right for you, find the medication, find the therapy animal, find the right therapist, going through multiple therapists, all those things. Did you ever feel discouraged or like there was no hope for you or that like you were never going to get better because you just couldn't find what would work? Yeah, like I talked about, I know there's something better because I am at the highest dose of what I'm taking, but I feel like I need more sometimes. I do not want to go through the tapering again and starting all over. And I'm also, I'm actually doubled up on medicines right now. I'm on Emma Prime. I don't actually know how to say it, honestly. And then Epixar at the same time. And I think that helps, but... I do want to try something different eventually if I can, but I just don't want to deal with the process. With all three of these disorders occurring um, all at the same time, they, the, the compuls obsessive compulsive personality disorder, the generalized anxiety disorder, and the persistent depression, do you ever notice yourself doing something like doing some behavior or something 
happening and then you try to discern whether it's because of one disorder or another or a combination like do you ever self notice yourself being like super conscious of something you're doing and wondering like is this anxiety or is this a symptom of depression or am i just being compulsive or do you ever have that experience so anxiety and depression co-occur a lot of the time with most people I try not to think into it that deeply because I know it would lead me to think that I don't even know myself, that I have no clue why I'm doing these things and I can't decide why. I just use techniques that I've learned in order to push past the moment and try not to really say which one is which. Mm -hmm. Okay. You mentioned that it's difficult at times for you to form and maintain meaningful relationships with people because of these, this, because of these disorders. Will you expand on that a little bit? What's your experience been like with friendships, relationships, or meeting new people, or anything like that? So I feel like obsessive compulsion, obsessive compulsive personality disorder is what affects this the most. I have expectations set for having friends and how they should be. Uh, it makes me more judgy on them, even based on the way they do things. And I know that this is a very isolating behavior, and I work to break down these judgments and let people be who they want to be. But it's even very small things, like when I come home, my mom is a little more messy than I am, and it just makes me kind of explode mm -hmm. when I'm here, and I like clean the house to a ridiculous amount. Or if like one of my friends decides to do something that I know in my head isn't the right thing, but it's the right thing for them, I'm like, why would you do that? Like, that's a ridiculous behavior. Why would you do, like, that is tearing everything down for my relationships. But you have to like tell your, but you find yourself having to like tell yourself like, it's okay, they're doing it differently than me, but it's fine, it's okay, I just have to, to deal with it. Yeah, and I find myself like when I'm having outbursts or irritability, I say something and then when I talk about it after the fact, I'm like, I know I just said that out of like being frustrated, being mad, I would never do that again. Like I can think back and learn from those experiences. Yeah, in retrospect, it's easier. Yeah. Um, I bet your mom enjoys having you home, though, doesn't she? Oh, probably. <laughs> it probably drives her crazy, though. <laughs> um, so a lot of people will look at this episode title and say, depression isn't a disability, or everyone gets anxious sometimes, or even, I thought this was a disability podcast. Those aren't disabilities. What would you say to those people? I don't want you to try and defend or justify your experience, because you don't owe that to anyone, but what would you say to people who don't think about disorders of mental health as being disabilities? So I would explain how it ties into people thinking you are not sick because of these disabilities. When you are hurting physically, you go to the doctor. If you are hurting mentally, you have the option to go to the doctor as well and get treatment. No matter how that treatment looks, you should still go when you are hurting, even if it's physical or mental. So definitely it's like, because it's not like a disability is something that no one asks to have. Um, and so you don't asked to have depression or anxiety or anything like that so therefore it's not something you can control therefore exactly. it's a disability you don't ask to break your ankle but then you go to the doctor you don't ask to be depressed or have anxiety but you still should go to the doctor for it mm -hmm. okay oftentimes people think of depression or anxiety as something that you can just get over one example is um, skip bayless remarks about dak prescott going public about his struggle with mental health on his talk show undisputed and I can link that in the description as well so people have an idea of what we're talking about. But the implication is that you could just hide it or put it on the back burner or something. How do you respond to people who think that you could just control your depression or anxiety and just carry on with life and pretend it doesn't exist? So I'm not saying this as a pessimist. 
But I believe that mental health disorders will always be with you no matter how severe. Anything can trigger it to come back. It's kind of like a disorder compared to alcoholism. Like most people, when they've been sober or clean for a certain amount of time, can't just have a casual drink because it will lead back down. So if you have a time where you're super, super anxious and then you've gotten over it for a little while, an event can trigger you. There are lots of different triggers. You've noticed probably now in the recent days that people have been giving trigger warnings because something like this can happen. But you learn how to cope and live with the life and live the life you want with your disorders, but there's always a chance to relapse. If Dak can lead his team, even while being open about his mental health, then it shouldn't be a problem. It shouldn't be a concern to anyone because he's doing what he's supposed to be doing while also being open and honest about his disorders. Okay, so depression looks very different. Anxiety looks very different depending on the person. And that's something that you can just explain to somebody, but I don't really know if that would make a huge impact on how they're feeling about that still. So one thing you could do is reference the DSM-5 and say, if you go under generalized anxiety disorder, there will be a huge list of symptoms that you could possibly have to have generalized anxiety disorder. And it's some, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's like, if you have four of these symptoms that last for six months, then you have this disorder. It kind of has a very, cookie cutter way of diagnosing it, but it's not a cookie cutter way of you have to have these exact symptoms. You have a wide variety of different things and that's how it is for most disorders. Because for a lot, like I know for a lot of different disorders, there could be like 10 diagnostic criteria and it might say you have to have three or more of these things and I could have three or more of those things and you could have three or more of those things and our three things are completely different from each other's. And that doesn't mean I'm any less whether it's depressed or, or, or anxious or whatever the disorder is than you are, it just means that our experiences are different. And so I think that's part of why like the DSM has to keep coming out with new additions because as we learn more and as we discover more about these disorders, we realize that more symptoms um, can be associated with them. And as people like evolve and as people change and as society moves on, like different things affect things different ways. And that's why we're always learning. Exactly. And because of the way that these symptoms are such a wide variety of things, also a reason that more DSMs come out, like we're on five, probably going to be six one day, I'd assume, is because once a disorder has so many symptoms that they're just like two complete opposites of each other, that's when I feel like psychologists are like, oh, maybe it's time to look into that a different disorder might be causing this. Yeah. So that might make a new disorder that they could move some of the symptoms around. Yeah, and that's why we have like generalized depression and then we, that breaks off to persistent depression and all these different kinds of depressions because they have different symptoms that that sort of break them and distinctify them from one another. Exactly. It's like how we said before with generalized anxiety or normal anxiety, OCD is under that, obsessive compulsion disorder is a type of anxiety, but the personality disorder is the personality disorder. So there's different forms of everything and even though some in of smaller categories. Some of, same, um, some of the same symptoms, they're still different disorders. Yeah, and it just breaks it down into smaller categories. Yeah. Okay, so when talking about disabilities, there are two models for studying them. The biological or medical model holds that disabilities are something that is wrong with you. It views disabilities as being something wrong with the way you are wired and with the chemical makeup of your body. This is a more traditional model. The other model is the social model and claims that disabilities are a result not of what is wrong with you, but what is wrong with the society and how society disables you. So for example, I am legally blind. 
the biological model says something is wrong with me. I can't see as well as quote-unquote normal people. The social model, however, says that I am not disabled by that, but that I am disabled by an inaccessible society. What we know is that both of these can be true at the same time. So regarding your disorders, do you think that generalized anxiety, anxiety disorder, persistent depression, and obsessive compulsive personality disorder are better explained by the biological model, the social model, or both? So personally, I've always been a very scientific person. I believe in science, which would be the biological model. Factually, I do have things wrong with my chemical makeup and how my brain is wired. I also believe that society has part of the blame for this as well. I think societal expectations are wrong and lead people down the path of disappointment. In my mind, neither the biological or social model can take the full explanation. I think that's the good thing about having both of those models is that they can work together to explain something. And I think a lot of the way that those, those models are used is when it comes to treatment. So like the biological model, speaking on like depression or anxiety, the biological model is going to give you medicine and give you pills to take and prescriptions and things like that, where the social model is going to be more of therapy where you work with a counselor and where you talk about how you can improve your interactions with other people and how you can build relationships better and stuff like that. So I think a lot of those models um, exist in order for treatment. And so I think, but again, I think that both of them can be true at the same time and that we can't, um, and that we can use both of them to explain simultaneously. Is there anything about your experience with generalized anxiety, persistent depression, or obsessive compulsive personality disorder that you know now that you wish you would have known before? If someone came to you, if someone came to you having just received a diagnosis and wanted your advice or some insight into what they can expect, what might you tell them? I would tell them that they aren't alone and it is okay. I know it's hard to wrap your head around, but in the end, it's not going to magically go away and that's something that you need to accept. You need to learn to live the life you want with what you are given. So a lot of people would think that experiencing these disorders would render you incapable of being a therapist of any kind. So like you mentioned that you want to maybe go into social work or therapy or something like that when you graduate, but there's a lot of people out there who would say, but you, you struggle with depression, you can't be a therapist, uh, and things like that. How would you disqualify that view? I believe that everyone should go to therapy, in my head. I think no matter if you have a disorder, you can still go to therapy and get life advice, kind of. But I feel like therapy isn't, you really don't need to be perfect yourself or not depressed or don't have anxiety. It's more or less if you have the tools you need in order to help somebody else rather than yourself. And also like having that experience will in a way give you more insight that no textbook can teach you. Yeah, that. maybe I kind of already have all my hours done just from <laughs> going to therapy myself. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add on anything we've discussed today? Someone I started to look into recently is Brene Brown. In her podcast, Unlocking Us, she once said, you need to have a soft front and a strong back. This changed how I presented myself. I used to want to seem so strong to others and not let them get to me or hurt me. But she helped me know that it's okay to be vulnerable as long as you don't let people tear you down. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the strong back comes into play. Yeah, it's important to have a strong backbone and not let people walk all over you. But at the same time, it's okay to like not have a good day it's okay to be upset sometimes it's okay to like need help sometimes and vulnerability is necessary it has to happen in order for life to go on yeah i think that's one of the one of the best things that you can find is someone that you can be comfortable and vulnerable with and share things you're struggling with so you don't bottle them up inside of yourself exactly whether that's just a good friend or a, a 
therapist or anything like that. So if you could tell the general public or anyone struggling with a disability of any kind one thing based on your experience, what would it be? So reach out for help. It's 2021 and there's there should be no shame. All of the recent research in normalizing mental health and disabilities has been huge and there's no reason to be suffering alone, no matter what it is. Gotcha. Um, well, that's, that's all the questions I have for you. So thank you for being on the podcast today. And um, I hope that that your experiences will help other people be more comfortable with reaching out for help and with um, discussing things they're dealing with um, or in any disability, whether it's physical or um, intellectual or mental or anything like that. I hope that your podcast episode today will help people become more comfortable sharing those and that ultimately will help to um, normalize the disability conversation. So thank you for being here today and thank you for being a part of the Disability Perspectives podcast. Thank you. So just as a quick follow-up to today's episode, I am introducing a new segment that I like to call Rapid Fire Questions. So I'm going to ask Kendall 10 questions, and she's going to answer them as quickly as she possibly can with as little thought as possible, just as a quick, fun way to end the podcast and help everybody end on a laugh. So I will ask you these 10 questions, and then I will give you a grade, a score out of 10, to see how you did afterwards. So, ready? Yep. As fast as you can go. What's your favorite color? Purple or yellow. What's your favorite place to hike? (laughs) Buffalo Mountain. How many pets do you have? My own or my family's? Any. Four. If you could leave tomorrow for a week-long vacation anywhere in the world with all expenses paid, where would you go? Greece. What is your favorite sports team? Any level, any sport? Virginia Tech Cookies. What is your favorite shade of orange? Shade of orange? Burnt orange. If you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Fruit. What's your favorite concert you've ever been to? One Direction. If you could relive, if you could re- relive one memory from your life, what would it be? Oh gosh, that's a hard one. Okay, we'll come back to it. Okay. What is heavier, a pound of bricks or a pound of feathers? A pound of bricks. If you were in the woods, wait. <laughs> if you were in the woods and a tree, just kidding. If a tree fell in the woods and you weren't around to hear it fall, does it still make a sound? Yes. Okay. If you could re- relive one memory from your life, what would it be? Getting my dog. Ding, ding, ding. That is all of the questions, and you scored an eighty-seven percent. Thank you. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Disability Perspectives podcast. Please share us with your friends and across your social media accounts so that we can all work together to normalize the conversation. Again, you can find the Disability Perspectives podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again to Scotty Larson and Paulina Sobel for all of their hard work behind the scenes that make this podcast possible. Until next time, we hope you will continue seeking to learn more and to expand your perspective. Until next time.